Thanks for checking out the Candeo podcast. To learn more about us, visit us at candeochurch.com. So if we haven't met, my name's Stephen. I'm the Salt Company Director here at Candeo. And we've been working through the Sermon on the Mount. We've come into this passage on how are we supposed to interact with our enemies? How do we interact with those who oppose us? So Matthew 5 is where we are at. One of uh, probably the times my brother Sam and I got in the most trouble was we were hanging out with a neighbor kid. And I wouldn't say that this neighbor kid was our friend. It was kind of one of those situations where he was the only boy our age in the neighborhood. So we hung out with him. Can't even remember his name to this day. So anyways, we're hanging out with him. He's kind of a jerk. And he uh, it just rained and there's kind of an empty lot in our development. And in this empty lot, there's just tons and tons of mud because of the rain. And so this neighbor boy does the most idiotic thing when two brothers are there, he goes up against us and grabs a huge thing of mud and throws it at our bicycle. So we're like, well, we're gonna do exactly what any eight-year-old boy will do. We grab more mud and start piling on his bikes. So now it's just this mud fight where we're piling mud on his bike, he's piling mud on our bikes. And now it goes from that, then he grabs more mud and starts putting it on us. And so now this has escalated to this all-out mud fight, and by the end of it, we were completely covered head to toe in sloppy, wet mud. It was disgusting. Our bikes were just covered and caked in it, and so we eventually roll back to our house. Now, my parents didn't mind if we like went out, got like dirty and everything, played outside, all that, but we were completely covered in mud, and we got in huge trouble. And so my dad said, why'd you do this? Why would you get so muddy and everything? And what do you think we said? He started it, right? Of course, the the justification for the mud fight was, well, he started it. And then it went from our bikes to us. And and so then we had to retaliate, right? That was, he was our enemy. He started it. So therefore we were justified in this all out mud fight, the biggest mud fight of my life. That is, even though we were eight, how we often think about relating to our enemies, right? If they do something, we are going to retaliate in a way that is in kind. Like he started it, we can now respond in a way that matches what he did. And that's, I think, how most of us think about relating to our enemies. If they do something to me, I'm going to do something to them. But here's the reality when it comes to relating to our enemies. I think for many of us, when we think about kind of the categories that Christianity or Jesus would teach us or have something to say about in our life, we immediately think of things like, oh yeah, our sexuality, God for sure would say something to me about that. I should have a Christian way of thinking about my sexuality. My marriage, yeah, God for sure has something to say about that. There's there's probably a Christian way to think about marriage, giving, reading my Bible, disciplines, those sorts of things. Those are categories in our mind that I often think we think, yes, there is a distinct way to engage in this category as a Christian, and I'm going to be intentional about how that looks in my life. One area, though, that I think we either consciously or subconsciously just adopt the way the world views is how do you relate to your enemies? And so many of us have never given any intentional thought in what it looks like for us to relate to those who oppose us. So what does that look like? How do we do that? Well, that's what we're going to see this morning. And the question that we're going to get asked by this text is, who do you resemble? 
in the way that you relate to your enemies, in the way that you relate to those who oppose you, who do you resemble? Do you resemble God or do you resemble the world? So we just had it read over us. Matthew 5, 38 begins this way. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, don't resist an evildoer. So Jesus, like we've seen in the Sermon on the Mount up to this point, he states something from the law, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, and now he is going to apply it to kingdom people. So he brings up this category. When people hurt you, when people harm you, when people are your enemy, how do we respond? Well, you've heard that it was said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, but here's what I say. What did he say? Verse 39, but I tell you, don't resist an evildoer. That's how kingdom people should respond to our enemies. You've heard those said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, but I say don't, respond, don't resist the evildoer. Now, what is going on here? Well, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth comes from Exodus. When God is giving the Israelites laws on how to take care of justice, how to distribute retribution for wrongdoing, he gives them this principle, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. If Someone gouges out an eye, you gouge out their eye. It's kind of this like, let the punishment fit the crime. But kind of the myth and translation is that applied to kind of civic situations. But over time, according to rabbinic tradition, what began to happen is they began to apply that principle to how individuals would address conflict. So now it wasn't just the legal system of retribution in, that governed Israel. It was how individuals carried out conflict resolution. You became judge, juror, executioner. Someone broke your arm, you would break their arm. So individuals were taking this. So what Jesus is saying here in verse 39 when he says, but I tell you, don't resist evildoers, is not that there's never a time and place to resist evil. When we study scripture, we have to put it in the context of not only what was happening in their culture, but also in the larger context of scripture. And we see all throughout scripture that there is a time and place for us to resist evil, to resist evildoers. But what he is specifically talking about is this rabbinic tradition that said you as the individual now have the ability to be judge, juror, and executioner and to seek your own retribution to vindicate yourself, to take vengeance into your own hands. And he's saying the kingdom people don't do that. Kingdom people don't take vengeance into their own hands. You've heard that it was said tooth for tooth, but I say don't, but I tell you don't resist an evildoer. So that's the kingdom principle. Now the way that, that Jesus is gonna articulate this is he's gonna flesh this out in five scenarios that we might find ourselves in. So if this is the principle, kingdom people don't take vengeance into their own hands, he's going to unpack this through five scenarios. So the first one is in the tail end of 39. It says this, on the contrary, if someone slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. So this is kind of the first enemy, the person who slaps you. Turn the other cheek. That's what kingdom people do. If you're slapped, turn the other cheek. Now, to understand what this scenario is, we need to understand kind of the cultural setting that it is. Because it would be easy to think, is Jesus just teaching this nonviolent passivism? Well, to, to address that, there's a couple thoughts here. One, all throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is using a rhetorical device of hyperbole. hyperbole. 
All throughout the Sermon on the Mount, he's saying things in an exaggerated way to make the point, to make his point abundantly clear. So we saw two weeks ago in Matthew 5, 31, if your arm causes you to sin, cut it off. Has anybody amputated an arm this week? No, that was an exaggerated, hyperbolic sentence statement to show us the point of how serious we should take fighting sin in our lives. He's using hyperbole to make his point abundantly clear. Next week, we're going to see in giving, don't let your right hand know what your left hand gave. Is that possible? No, it's not possible. We're going to see the week after that. When you pray, go into your closet. Well, did we all just sin because we weren't in a closet? No, we didn't sin, but he's using hyperbole to make his point abundantly clear. So that's one of the features in the Sermon on the Mount when you come to try to understand what he's saying that we have to take into account, this, this rhetorical device of hyperbole. The second is I somewhat mentioned it earlier. Jesus is specifically talking about how individuals interact with the conflict and opposition they face on an individual level. He's not necessarily intending this to be applied to government, to larger institutions. That would be contradictory to the rest of Scripture. In Romans 13, we see that Paul says the government has the ability to carry the sword, to maintain justice. There's a place for justice to be administered. It's totally legitimate for countries to protect themselves within through law enforcement and for countries to protect themselves outwardly through military. So he's talking about the individual level. He's not necessarily talking about a governmental level. The last aspect that would kind of help us understand that this isn't just advocating for pacifism is think about what he said there. Look back at verse 39. He said, if someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. Okay, think about your right cheek. I'm, my microphone's there, so I can't rub it as much as I thought I would eventually, initially. It makes my voice sound weird, doesn't it? Okay, so think about your right cheek. What is the only way someone could slap your right cheek? Well, either they slap you with their left hand, try to picture this mentally, either their left hand, or what's more likely that Jesus had in mind is that it's a backhanded slap. That the majority of people are right-handed, so if they're going to strike your right cheek, it had to be with the backhand of their right hand. Now, so what is Jesus saying? Jesus doesn't have in mind here a violent attack on your life. He has in mind here an insult to your reputation. This isn't a situation where your life is being threatened. It's a situation where your reputation is being threatened. What does that mean? Well, to be abundantly clear, Given the, the surrounding text, the rest of testimony of Scripture, this is not teaching pacifism. It's not teaching nonviolence. It's not teaching that there's never a time and place to use self-defense against violent attacks. What it's teaching is when your reputation is being attacked, when you are being insulted, turn the other cheek. That is the disposition of believers, of kingdom people. We don't do everything we can to protect our reputation. Instead, we trust that God will vindicate our name, will vindicate our reputation even when it is being insulted, even when it's being attacked. What Jesus is saying is that kingdom people should be so secure in God that they can handle the sting of a slap. You should be so secure in the approval and reputation you have before God because of Christ 
that as your name is being threatened, as your reputation is being threatened, you have the ability to walk away. You have the ability to turn the other cheek. Now, does that mean there's never, ever, ever a time and place to stand up for yourself, to, to clarify who, who you are, what you're about? No, there probably is. But what Jesus is saying is the primary disposition of the believer is that as your reputation is being attacked, you are at peace knowing that you don't have to vindicate yourself, but God will vindicate you. Why? Because those who are most secure in Christ can handle the slap, the sting of a slap. So think about that. When was the last time you were insulted and didn't respond? Are you so insecure that every time your reputation is threatened, you are doing everything you can to vindicate yourself? When you are slapped, when your reputation is slapped, do you slap back? Do you immediately call into question their reputation? How do you respond when your reputation is being attacked? Kingdom people turn the other cheek. So that's the first enemy that we face, the person who slaps us, the person who insults us. Here's the second one, verse 40. As for the one who wants to sue you and take away your shirt, let him have your coat as well. Now, what's going on here? Well, this isn't someone who is stealing from you. If someone's stealing from you, Jesus isn't saying, hey, if they're stealing your shirt, let them take everything else with it. No, he's talking about someone who has a legitimate case against you. They are suing you legally, right? Verse 40, for the one who wants to sue you. So they have a legitimate case against you. And he says, if they want your shirt, let him have your coat as well. Now, for the Jewish audience, often they would have one outer coat that was extremely valuable to them. This would be their only means of kind of cover from the elements at night. And it was so valuable that they would put it up as a pledge, a financial pledge, a security deposit from time to time. But the law clearly stated that if they put up their coat for a pledge, it would have to be returned to them by nightfall so that they won't be naked, so they won't be exposed to the elements of night. It was an extremely valuable piece of clothing to them. Well, the other piece of clothing they had were some undergarments. And typically they had one to two undershirts that they would rotate through. So when you were suing someone, if they didn't have the financial means to cover that lawsuit, you could sue them for their shirt. That could be a way that they covered the lawsuit, but they were unable to sue you for your coat. A judge could make you hand over your undershirt, but you couldn't the judge could not make you hand over your coat. That is how valuable it was to them. And so what Jesus is bringing up here is this. If someone has a legitimate case against you, don't just give the bare minimum, but do all you can to make right what you've done wrong. What he's saying is, as you face people that you have hurt and as they're bringing stuff against you, do all that is within your means, even if it is costly to you, to make it right. That is what kingdom people do. When we realize that we've hurt other people, we don't try to get out of that as cheaply and quickly as possible. We don't try to do the bare minimum to restore the relationship. Jesus is saying we should be so contrite, 
so humble, so broken about the ways that we have hurt other people that we're gonna do everything possible to make the situation right? Is that your disposition when, people, when you realize you've hurt other people? Do you do all that is within your power to right the wrong? Or are you the type of person that when you realize that someone has a case against you, your immediate thought is, how can I get out of this doing the bare minimum? How can I get out of this doing as little as possible? How can I get out of this as cheap as possible? And Jesus is saying, hey, even if it costs you something extremely valuable like your coat, do all that you can, all that is in your power to right this wrong even if it exceeds what would be necessary to restore this relationship. When was the last time someone confronted you and you were so broken about the way that you hurt them that you did everything possible to right that wrong? When have you seen that from someone else? Like parents, you can absolutely tell when your child has a genuine, broken, repentant heart because they're not just looking for the bare minimum to get back right with you. They're like, oh my word. Like if they're genuinely repentant, oh my word, I'm gonna do everything I can, mom and dad, to make this right. I'm gonna do more than you're asking me. I'm gonna do more that's ne- than, that, than is necessary. That is what kingdom people do. We're so broken about the ways that we have hurt other people that we are going to do everything that is in our power to right the wrong. The third opposition, the third enemy. So we've seen the one who insults you. We've seen the one who sues you. 41. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. What's going on here? Well, under the Roman occupation in Israel, a Roman soldier was able to ask or require anyone to walk a mile with him carrying his pack. And so usually the soldiers carried a pack as they were out on different uh, tours or whatever, and they would, that pack could easily be 60 pounds. And under Roman law, they were able to ask anyone, anytime, at any moment, hey, drop what you're doing and walk with me a mile carrying my pack. So that's what they would do. Romans, they didn't want their soldiers to get unnecessarily exhausted, so they had this law. Well, for the Jewish people, they hated this, right? Every time they were asked, it was a humiliating moment. It reminded them of the Roman occupation. It was an example of their subjugation to the Romans. And you could imagine how easily this was abused by soldiers. Situations where they would just take advantage of someone who was clearly busy, clearly preoccupied and say, hey, come walk a mile with me. And they'd either count off a thousand steps or the Roman highways had mile markers where they could easily see how far they had gone. So Jesus is looking at these Roman occupiers, the enemies of the Jews. And he's saying, hey, if they ask you to go one mile, go two. That's what kingdom people do. Now, why? Why is Jesus telling his people to do this. Well, who is humiliated during the second mile? Right, if the first mile is humiliating to the Jew, who's humiliated during the second mile? Imagine the impact that it would have on a Roman soldier if for the first time he encountered a Jew 
who instead of muttering curses under his breath, who instead of being critical, who instead of maybe throwing the pack the extra foot so he didn't have to walk it one more foot than necessary. Imagine the impact it would have on a Roman soldier if he was instead met with kindness, with joy. If you're joking around like, hey, let's make that guy carry my pack. And instead it's meant, yeah, I would love to carry your pack. Let's go. Hey, you know what? This isn't too bad. I'll, let me just take it for you a, a second mile. Don't you think the Roman soldier would start to get uncomfortable? I've had some nicknames that I do not like. I hate these certain nicknames. I've never told anybody what those nicknames are. And I've been called those nicknames several times. But I never tell them, hey, that is like my least favorite thing to be called. And you know what? Magical. They've never stuck. Why? Because I don't let on that it bothers me. What is one of the best ways to not get a nickname to stick? What is the best way to not be teased anymore? Don't let anyone know that it bothers you, right? That takes all of the fun out of the, for the bully, right? If a bully is teasing you and you're just like, oh yeah, I'll go a second mile. So tell me about your family. Do you have a wife and kids at home? Like that Roman soldier is going to start to get pretty uncomfortable. Like, oh man, like it's not as fun when you're not cursing me out every step of this way. Jesus is saying it will have a huge impact if you're the sort of people that as you face opposition, it's met with kindness, joy, and service. What's your attitude when your boss hands you one more report on Friday afternoon? And they clearly could have given it to you on Monday. Hey, I just need you to get this done before you leave the, for the weekend. It's 4.30. You knew I had to do this on Wednesday. Why didn't you give it to me? What's your response? What's your response to your coworker who missed that deadline again and is saying, hey, is there any way you could help me with this? Do you mutter under your breath? Do you give him a speech on responsibility? Are you upset in your heart? Do you slander them behind their back? Could you imagine the impact it would have if we were the sort of people that Boss comes at 4.30. Hey, I need you to do this report. Yeah, absolutely. Any other things that you need me to do before we head out for the weekend? Let me do this extra thing too. Coworker. Hey, I, I actually saw that you were struggling here. Like I did this and I did this. You didn't even ask. But that's going to cost me. Yeah, it will. But this is what kingdom people do. And you'd probably never say my boss or my coworker, maybe you would, but maybe, hopefully you'd say they're my outright enemy. But in that moment on Friday afternoon at 4.30, they feel like your enemy, right? What's your response? And Jesus is saying the bigger impact won't be to not go the mile. It won't be to mutter curses under your breath the whole way through. It will be go the second mile. Meet that opposition with kindness, joy, and service, and watch the impact you'll have. One commentator pondered, he said, I wonder how many Roman soldiers gave their life to Christ on the second mile. How many gospel conversations are in the second report that you do for your boss? How many moments where you can care and encourage your coworker are gonna be opened up as you help them with the second responsibility they didn't ask you to help with? That's where the impact happens in the second mile. 
fourth category, we'll move through these next two a little bit more quickly. 42, give to the one who asks you and don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Jesus is saying, kingdom people, we give generously. He's saying, hey, it would be better to err on the side of lending too freely to those who ask than not lending because you're afraid that that person may or may not pay you back. Yeah, it might cost you in the long run, but that's what kingdom people do. We give generously to those who ask. We lend to those who want to borrow from us, even if we don't really trust them, even if it might cost us, even if we might bear the cost of their irresponsibility at some point. The fifth group, 43. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Those who persecute you, love your enemy, pray for them. How do kingdom people respond to their enemies? Well, they love them and they pray for them. When was the last time there was a tangible expression of love that you made towards someone you would consider an enemy? someone who is opposed to the things, the priorities of your life, when could you point out that, you know, that was an objective way I just loved them? When was the last time you seriously prayed for your enemies? Prayed for their hearts to be softened, prayed for their salvation? Love your enemy, pray for those who persecute you. So those are five categories of enemies, opposition that we might come across. And Jesus is saying over and over again, there should be a distinct way that we interact with them than the world interacts with them. And we see that in verse 45. So here's kind of the question, why do we interact with the world in this way? Well, verse 45 gives us the answer. It says, so that you may be children of your father in heaven. Why do we interact with our opposition with enemies in this way? So that you may be children of your father. Now, think about children and fathers. What is true of children? Children resemble their fathers. That might be unfortunate for my kids, but they're stuck with this look in this body. I'm sorry, Isla Jack and crew. Children have a resemblance. One of the first things that you ask parents in a hospital, who do they look like? Whose nose do they have? Whose eyes do they have? Children resemble their parents. And not just in appearance, but also in behavior. We were eating spaghetti like six months ago, and my kids are now doing what I've done my entire life, which is I just take spaghetti, put it on my garlic toast, and eat it that way. And it's fine for me because I'm an adult with good mechanical movement. It is bad news for Jack, who's two and can't quite figure out how to get spaghetti onto, that's just a lot of movement for a two-year-old. Spaghetti on the bread, into the mouth, and trying to avoid it all over clothes. Most of the time, I just strip him down naked and we call it good. So, spaghetti night is always bath night. I don't know if everybody knows that, but if we have spaghetti, it's also bath night. That's how it works at our house. But they mimic me, right? Children, it, it can be cute. It can also not be cute. Jack, also, two months ago, began walking around the house. Anytime he was upset, he'd just go, oh, dang it. Like, ah, oh, Jack, daddy and I, or daddy and you will both work on that. We're not going to say that anymore, okay? Children mimic, children resemble their fathers. And here's what Jesus is pointing out in verse 45. He's asking you to think, who do you resemble? Do you resemble your father? 
Well, how do we resemble our fathers in this way? Well, look what he does. Here's what he does, verse 45 again. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. He's gracious towards those who haven't merited it, who don't deserve it, and who are unworthy of it. Right? He's saying he, he causes his son to rise, his rain to fall on people, whether they're evil or good, righteous or unrighteous. He doesn't base his grace towards people on their merit, their deserving of it, or on their worthiness. No, he blesses them regardless if they're enemies or his children. That's how our father treats his enemies. Sun to rise, rain to fall. His blessing isn't contingent on their deserving of it. So is that how you approach your opposition? Is that how you interact with your enemies? Hey, this person doesn't deserve my grace in this moment, but that's what my father does. Sun to rise, rain to fall. This person doesn't deserve me to go the extra mile to resolve this conflict. I just merged two of those, but let's keep going. But that's what my father does. This person, they're taking advantage of me potentially. They're making, putting work on me that shouldn't be my work. I'm gonna go the extra mile. Why? Because even though they don't deserve it, that's what my father does. Now, Jesus is contrasting resembling our father to resembling the world. Look at verses 46 and 47. He says, for if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? If you only love the people who love you, for the Jews, the worst people they could think of were the tax collectors. He's saying the worst people we can think of, they do that. You're not doing anything different. Verse 47, and if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what are you doing out of the ordinary? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? Gentiles just being the rest of the world. This is what the world, this is what the worst people of the worst people do. They love those who love them. They greet their brothers and sisters. If that's all you do, if that's the only people that you love and greet, you're the same as the world. So who do you resemble? When you faced opposition from someone, can you think of a time when you've responded to that as a believer that is distinctly different from how you would have responded to that situation as a non-believer? Or every time that you face opposition, does your response look the same it would have looked like even if you were a non-Christian? You see, I think so many of us have unconsciously just adopted the American worldly way of dealing with conflict. Well, you gotta stand up for yourself. Well, it's not fair. Well, we, got, we gotta have justice. At some point, I gotta draw the line. They're taking advantage of me. Have you ever given intentional thought to how you'll respond when someone slaps you? To how you will respond when someone insults your reputation? Or have you just by default adopted the way the world responds to those situations? Who do you resemble? If you are God's child, can, the, can people see you giving a resemblance of his likeness in the way you respond to your enemies? If people looked at the way you responded to the conflict at work this week, who would they say you look like? Whose nose did you get? Whose eyes did you get? 
Did you just get the world's way of dealing with enemies or did you get God's? How could we ever respond that way, right? Because that's a tall order. How can we consistently be the sort of people that respond to our enemies on the basis of grace, like God the Father? Well, look what verse 48 reveals. It reveals a standard. Verse 48 says this, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. The standard of resemblance is perfection. Do you perfectly resemble your father in the way you relate to enemies? I think all of us would immediately say, no, I do not perfectly resemble my father. So what does this verse then expose? It exposes a reality that God's standard is perfection, but none of us meet that standard which means if you have any chance of relating to your enemies on the basis of grace, you have to first see how this standard shows you that God related to you as his enemy on the basis of grace. Romans 5.10 says, while we were enemies. Romans 8.7 says that the mindset of the flesh is hostile to God. This verse is revealing to all of us that we have failed to meet this standard. We have all fallen short of the glory of God, which means we are all enemies of the cross. Philippians 3.18, many are enemies of the cross, which means that there are only two types of people in this world, enemies of the cross and ex-enemies of the cross. Nobody in this world was born neutral or born a child of God. We were all born failing to meet this standard. But what happened? Well, God showed grace to his enemies. Jesus came into the world. And as he faced the insults and false accusations, Isaiah 53, 7 tells us that like a sheep silent before her shears, he did not open his mouth. We're told that in order to reconcile us to God, Romans 5, 9, he shed his blood. Jesus Christ came. He was humiliated so that his enemies could be reconciled to God. Philippians 2, 6 tells us that he became obedient even to the point of death, death on a cross. He was humiliated on the cross, becoming a servant of all so that we could have salvation. Jesus, though rich, became poor so that we could have eternal riches in him. Jesus on the cross prayed, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they do. Jesus looked at us while we were still enemies. God sent his own son to die for us. Jesus looked at us as enemies and he fulfilled these commands for us so that we could have the hope of eternal life, so that we could go from enemies of the cross to ex-enemies of the cross, so that we could go from rebellion to child. And it's only when we realize and acknowledge that we were once an enemy of the cross, but have now been made a child through his grace, will we ever be the sort of people that can relate to our enemies on the basis of grace? So who do you resemble? If you've been born again into this family, do you resemble your father? 
who showed you grace, even though you didn't deserve it. Let's pray. God, what an incredible truth that though we were enemies, we've been reconciled to you through Christ. That his death and his resurrection have saved us from our guilt, from our inability to be perfect. And God, I pray that those truths would move us to be people who resemble you, who engage with the world around us in a way that is distinct from the way the world handles criticism, from the way that the world handles opposition, from the way the world handles their enemies. God, that we would interact with people who are opposed to us graciously. God, let us be people who resemble you to the world. Amen. This has been a message from Candeo Church. To learn more about us or to hear more messages, visit us at candeochurch.com.